0: chocolate 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 Chocolate. hey chocolate lovers this week is the continuation of our season two wrap-up this episode features the full-length interview i did with samuel maruta back in september sam is the co-founder of maru chocolate a craft chocolate company based in ho chi minh city vietnam since its founding in 2011 maru has worked directly with vietnamese cocoa farmers They use that directly sourced cacao to craft tons of delicious, value-added chocolate. I interviewed Sam for episode 16 on Vietnamese chocolate and cacao culture. In the interview, we dig into the mindset at Maru, Vietnamese agriculture, and how quickly the country is changing. Enjoy! So could you tell me a bit about how you and Vincent founded Maru?
1: Yeah, I mean, Maru's been around since 2011. So it's been almost eight years. I met Vincent in 2010. We were both in Vietnam and at the time we we both came up with the idea um, separately to do something with cacao in Vietnam. And then when we realized that we both share this interest in, in cacao in Vietnam, we decided to join forces and, uh, and started the company that bears our names because uh, Maru, is half of it is my family name, Maruta, and half of it is Vincent's name, Mo. So we stuck them together and, and started a, a company uh, making chocolate in Vietnam with cacao from Vietnam.
0: And what's your current role at Meru and how has it changed over the years as the company has grown?
1: Well, (laughs) when we started, not only we didn't know what we were doing, we we had no experience making chocolate. But, you know, we we had to do everything ourselves, you know, from from the chocolate making to the business sides to, you know, trying to find farmers, buying cacao. You know, all the hundreds of things that you need to do to uh, to get a bean-to-bar chocolate company in a country of origin where there was no template for that. So so we did pretty much everything ourselves. The first batch of chocolate we made in, in the kitchen of my house, uh, you know, and then we had to find a place to create a chocolate factory, hire people, teach ourselves how to make chocolate, teach other people how to make chocolate. You know, from from the technical sides of it, the roasting, uh, tempering, all all these technical things that you know uh, make you a chocolate maker. Now, eight years later, we're uh, we've got a company with fairly technical sides to it. the the, the chocolate factory. We we just um, earlier this year had an uh, inspection from the FDA. The, FDA sent federal agents to Vietnam and they checked our, our facilities. They, it wasn't just a, a quick visit. They, they actually spent three days on site and, and, and no stone was left unturned, if I, if I can say, you know, they, they, they looked at absolutely everything and, and we passed. So it shows that, you know, we've come a long way from making chocolate in, in my kitchen.
0: Over the last almost decade, what has the evolution of the bean to bar scene been like throughout Vietnam? When when did you guys expand up to Hanoi?
1: Uh, Hanoi, we opened at the end of uh, twenty seventeen, so September twenty seventeen. Uh, we opened our first shop in May twenty sixteen in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, w- when we started in, in twenty eleven, th- there was virtually nothing you could call bean-to-bar chocolate-making in Vietnam. So, in that sense, we were real trailblazers. Uh, now, I've almost lost count of the, the number of you know chocolate makers that have been setting up shop, and the, the process of their uh, setting up seems to be accelerating all the time. There's new makers coming up all the time. I'm not sure how sustainable that movement is because what's happened is that even though there's a lot more people making chocolate, there's unfortunately not a lot more people producing cacao in Vietnam. And we're seeing a, a lot of tension on the cacao side, on the production of cacao in Vietnam. Uh, it, it was a marginal, um, agricultural activity 10 years ago. Uh, it's become even more marginal today.
0: So when you say that that's been the biggest issue this year with continuing to run and expand the company is the sourcing side?
1: Yeah. The sourcing side definitely, definitely is, is a big, big, uh, for lack of a better word, headache, where we have long term solutions, or at least we, we have long term projects to try and find solutions. But in the short term, you know, there's only so much cacao being produced in Vietnam. Out of this small quantity of cacao being produced, there's only so much cacao that we accept as being of the quality grade that we need to make our chocolate. And we're, you know, basically we're finding the limits of uh, of what there is today.
0: So, what do you know about the history of cacao and chocolate in Vietnam?
1: We've done, actually, when, uh, back in the days when we had uh, a less frantic activity, I I spent a bit of time researching whatever history of cacao and chocolate I could find in Vietnam. So the lucky thing is, uh, you know, a a lot of the archives are in French. So we found some fairly enlightening stuff. So, So for example we had from the archives of the uh, former Tropical School of Agronomy in France, the archivists told us that uh, the, the first recorded cacao plantations in Vietnam took place in the province of Ben Chê in the 1870s. And the cacao was planted by a priest, a Catholic priest called Father Jernot. So that, that's the first sort of recorded presence of cacao in what is now Vietnam then we found also in the colonial archives, a decree from 1907, where the person in charge of what was then known as the province of Cochin, China said, we're going to stop subsidizing plantations of cacao. It's, it's very short, but at least it shows that at some point before 1907, uh, somebody thought that it was worth subsidizing the plantation of cacao. So, so there was some sort of effort to plant cacao in southern Vietnam in the very early 20th century. But then the one sort of written extract that we found said basically we, a decision to stop subsidizing the plantation of cacao because it was deemed to be a failure at the time. And then pouring over records of shipments in and out of Indochina. Sort of statistical records show that there was very very minute quantities of cacao being exported out of Indochina in the 1920s and 1930s, but right, the, the quantities are, are truly ridiculous. We're talking maybe a few hundred kilos or a few tons per year, so nothing of any significance. Then jumping from the colonial written records to more of an oral history, when we talk to some of the older farmers in the Mekong Delta, some of them tell us that, uh, and we're talking about people who would have been children in in the 1960s during the Vietnam War, those farmers uh, tell us that there was a bit of cacao before, that there were some sort of efforts being made uh, during the American phase of the Vietnam War to plant cacao, but it was a very chaotic time, of course. So the plantation of cacao was never something that took on a large scale. After 1975, when the war ended, then there was, there was a new phase where basically with, with the help of Russian and Cuban advisors, the communist government tried to reintroduce cacao in Vietnam and plantations were made at that time. Actually, a few years ago, Vincent and I went to Cuba and we met uh, some agronomist in Cuba who was in his eighties and, and remembered training people that had been sent from Hanoi to uh, Santiago de Cuba or to Baracoa to learn about the, the plantation of cacao. But that was another false start because by the time those plantations were implemented, you had the fall of the Berlin Wall. And Vietnam, still being under embargo, did not have any outlets for its cacao. So all those uh, sort of Soviet-era plantations were were destroyed, the trees were ripped off and replaced by stuff that could be used within Vietnam. When we started uh, making chocolate 10 years ago, what we found, the small cacao infrastructure we found in Vietnam, was the product essentially of, uh, of an initiative by yeah. U.S. companies Mars and Cargill uh, with the help of USAID in the very early 2000s to uh, relaunch cacao in Vietnam. I think if you're looking at, you know, who was responsible, who drove the uh, plantation of cacao, it's more companies like uh, Cargill and Mars and USAID and uh, of course their Vietnamese partners like uh, Dr Phuc from Nong Lam University you know because uh, they couldn't do that without the Vietnamese authorization and the the help of the the Vietnamese uh, staff at the Agricultural University.
0: What do you think has had big impact upon shaping how Vietnam has approached chocolate culture because there's no tradition of consuming chocolate.
1: You know if you read about like 50 years ago things like butter came in tins like sardines you know you would open a tin of butter that had been shipped from halfway around the world so there was really no milk no butter no dairy in Vietnam until fairly recently and what little there was came in tins so yeah it, things like chocolate and dairy they're kind of alien to the traditional vietnamese culinary culture even 10 years ago when when we started maru we we thought well it's going to be mostly an export business because who eats chocolate here expats but there aren't so many of them and but you know things are changing very quickly and vietnam is a Is a country where habits are changing very fast if you're asking who's responsible for that i think that thing of saying well you know vietnam has cacao you can eat chocolate that's made in vietnam with cacao from vietnam you know for putting that on the map we've been instrumental it's not completely obvious i mean i'm i've got people calling me from uh, major producing countries like ghana Uh, recently asking me, hey, that's very interesting, You're, you're making chocolate in the country where you find the cacao and telling me, we're in Ghana, we're the second producer of cacao in the world, we don't really have a culture of making high quality chocolate in our country. So that experience is not, even though it may seem obvious to us, is not something that you have to take for granted.
0: Yeah, and I think especially... The element of being a foreign product that's imported rather than something that people can make there like chocolate is a thing that's brought in it's not a thing that's mm-hmm. made there and if it's made there it must be low quality
1: yeah. yeah i mean one thing one way i like to look at things is for example you know uh i i like vietnamese fish sauce i don't know if you like vietnamese fish sauce but i don't have the faintest idea how to make fish sauce but if i'd been a vietnamese person growing up in uh in baria or in phu Khoa with a tradition of uh, of making fish sauce and i found myself in i don't know some small mediterranean island uh where there is sardines and uh and sort of small oily fish in to make fish sauce then it wouldn't be stupid to think that somebody that a Vietnamese person in Sardinia for example could think to themselves well uh, let's make vietnamese style high quality fish sauce in the mediterranean and for me you know when people say oh how did you come up with the idea of of making chocolate in vietnam it's just like i grew up with chocolate or Vincent and I we grew up with chocolate we had a taste for it, we had an appreciation for it. We learned how to make it, and then the raw material was there, so you know it was just a case of let's do it
0: yeah, now that I mean it makes perfect sense, but if you grew up in a different part of Vietnam and you grew up just eating fish sauce, you may it may not even occur to you that it's possible to make it
1: yeah, yeah well, and then I often think that people are sometimes held back by the idea that they can't do it or they don't know how to do it and and if you have the curiosity if you have the you know if you're really interested i haven't tried making fish sauce but i'm sure if you gave me an assignment of you know trying to make fish sauce within six months and gave me some resources to do it i i don't see why it shouldn't be possible to do it
0: yeah i mean it's a good mindset and i'm sure it's one that you've had to have to approach eight years ago like oh why not let's try it
1: (laughs) absolutely i think sort of imagination failure or uh, you know or people being too shy and thinking oh no i can't do it you know that's what holds back people very often and even in a place like france when vincent and i got started on chocolate people were saying to us but you don't know what you're doing you've never made chocolate you know you don't come from a chocolate making family you don't have what legitimacy do you have to be making chocolate and we're like well none really but you know we we've tried making it and uh the result wasn't bad and it's getting better so just because nobody's told you you could doesn't mean you can't
0: yeah it seems like in europe there's still sort of a legacy of you have to have an internship or an apprenticeship before you can do something with much history like making chocolate or welding
1: yeah there's almost that uh medieval guild uh, mindset uh, still prevalent in a in a lot of the traditional trades and i have enormous respect for uh you know traditional makers and and people who come from you know who approach things like chocolate with a uh, with a lot of you know family or in, not even family but with the tradition, things that have been passed down. You know, you you talk to people and and, and things like candied fruits seem simple, but are extremely, extremely technical. You know, you you talk to people who've been candying fruits for generations and making really good stuff and you you get a, a newfound respect for the amount of time that people have spent over the last 150 years, you know, perfecting the art of candying fruits, you know, and it's the same thing with chocolate. It's cool, we are into bar we're disrupting things, and, and really, I, I, I don't know, maybe one day we'll find out who first came up with the idea of using an Indian wet grinder to grind cacao beans into chocolate. But that, that was truly genius, because whoever came up with that, uh, that, that, that completely unleashed a whole new world of possibilities for chocolate making on a, on a small scale.
0: Yeah. Now there are a lot of people using other things like, uh, tea leaves or even using coffee beans and cocoa butter to make different types of chocolate and stretching the definition of chocolate. Yeah.
1: And, and that's cool. But you know, when it gets down to, if you have a couple kilos or pounds of, of cacao beans and you want to make chocolate, And, and you want to make, you know, your classic dark chocolate with 70% cacao, 30% sugar. It just wasn't possible to make that until somebody came up with the idea that, you know, the, the tabletop grinders you can buy for, for 150 bucks at uh, Indian Bazaar was the perfect tool.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Game
1: changer. And and to me, that's, that, that, that's, that's really been a complete game changer. And and the reason why, you know, all these bean to bar chocolate makers came up from 10 years ago and onward is because that very simple technical revolution was there.
0: Did you two start in a little Indian work grinder?
1: (laughs) The history is that back in February 2011, we we got with Vincent, we, we bought two kilos of cacao beans. We brought them home. We put them in the oven so so we roasted them on on a tray in the oven then we peeled them by hand and and put them in a blender in a sort of juicer with blades and we we added some sugar but the thing is it was very interesting from a taste point of view it showed that you know we had something extremely intense and very interesting but the the texture was definitely not that of uh, of chocolate so so, you know, as soon as we had this first inkling that the taste was going to be there, we, we thought, well, how do we get from the taste to the texture? And then the next step, you know, we went on John Nancy's uh, chocolate alchemy website and he said, oh, you should use a, uh, one of those Indian grinders and, and they're really good for, for making chocolate in small batches. So we, we went scouring Ho Chi Minh City, trying to find one of them. And we found some that were being used by Indian restaurants. And we asked the owners, oh, where can we get this stuff? And they said, well, you go to Singapore and you go to the Indian bazaar there and and, and you can find them. So very quickly, I think, you know, within a couple of weeks of having the idea of making chocolate, we, we had flown to Singapore to get that first machine. And that's how we, you know, we taught ourselves how to make chocolate.
0: Someone less than a less than two weeks ago was telling me about how he went to a market in Singapore and was buying a grinder maybe once every few months for a few years, yeah, and the last time he went, someone had gone and bought all of the grinders. I think this was after your time but and the guy asked him, Why why do all these foreign people keep coming and buying up these grinders? And I said, Oh, to make chocolate. Yeah. And he said, Oh, the other guy said the same thing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a classic case of hacking, of using something that was meant for lentils and chickpeas and, and, and then being the perfect tool to make chocolate on a very small scale.
0: Yeah, I've I've also noticed that Vietnam's gotten their Coffee game up to being, I think, the second largest exporter of coffee beans
1: in the world. Second largest producer, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. also relatively. And recent, if you right? look at, uh, that's fairly recent. It, it actually explains, you know, the push into cacao that happened about twenty years ago. The people who were pushing for cacao in, in Vietnam, uh, what they were trying to do was to diversify on a global scale. The sources of cacao, you know, most of it comes from Western Africa, Indonesia for a long time was the third largest producer, but it's a very highly concentrated market in terms of volume. So, you know, people, the big trading companies like Cargill, they thought, oh, wouldn't be great if Vietnam became like it has for coffee, a major producer adding some diversity to the source of cacao worldwide so that there was the rationale behind pushing vietnam to plant cacao uh, and and the success vietnam had had in pushing coffee was seen as you know a, a good omen for uh for cacao plantation
0: well, on the con-
1: but, it didn't, but it didn't work out
0: yeah i mean it seems to be it seems to me that like there's been a lot more Vietnamese cacao on the market, but it may just be relative to other producers in Asia, putting anything out on the fine cacao market.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get good stats. But I I think we think that the total production of cacao in Vietnam is in the two to 3000 tons per year range, which is really, really small. It's, you know, 0.1% of world production. I mean, it's more than places like Thailand where it's even more marginal, but it's still smaller than Malaysia, even though when you speak to Malaysian makers, they tell you that, well, Malaysia was once a a great cacao producer, but now it's almost gone. So the, the production in Vietnam, you know, objectively, it's a very small production.
0: Do you think that the coffee culture in Vietnam has affected the consumer side at all?
1: Uh, There's different traditions. If you compare the North and the South, there's a lot more coffee being drunk in the South of Vietnam. And if you're looking at the sort of high-end quality coffee, then all the production and a lot of the transformation is based around Dalat. So it's a very local market because because Vietnam is such a large producer of coffee. It's also a very large industry with very big players. You have like uh, multinational companies like Acom, who are big trading companies. They they provide coffee for the likes of Starbucks and Nestle and you know so so they, these are people with very large infrastructure. They they buy a lot of coffee. There's a lot of coffee being produced. If you look at the environmental impact, all this growth in the, in the coffee production that happened from the 1980s onwards was on the back of massive deforestation in the, in the south of Vietnam, in the southern highlands, you know, places like Dak Lak or Lam Dong, especially the, the sort of highlands that are fairly flat around Bao Lop. These are places that at some point would have been covered with primary forest. And by the 1990s, all that forest cover was gone to make way for a lot of coffee plantation.
0: Yeah, a lot of people in the south were mentioning rubber trees.
1: And rubber trees too. Rubber trees are probably the most awful of the uh, sort of, well, I I guess palm trees for palm oil are even worse. But, you know, they're, they're up there with palm oil in terms of environmental damage. Just rows after rows of those you know trees, and nothing grows in between and uh, and the trees themselves are scarred with the with the sap coming out and being you know turned into rubber it's 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 pretty sad
0: it was insane to see how how absolutely massive the plantations were as I was going through bahia to to Vungtau.
1: yeah, yeah
0: so how have how have the six regions maru works with six cacao regions right now right
1: yeah well yes actually seven
0: oh really
1: well the the, the yeah the, the, there's one uh that we we don't we haven't made a specific chocolate with it but we use cacao beans from from there too
0: okay well how have the seven regions developed over the past eight years have did you start with the seven regions
1: no i mean in the beginning there were four and then you know we we added more to the collection they're very very uneven the fact that we we can put six bars next to each other and they all come from different regions and you could assume that they're equal that they're absolutely not equal so so you've got uh, places like Benche or Daklag that have fairly large output and then some that have very very small output and sometimes declining fast. Uh, Dong Nai, for example, is very small. Um, Barya is quite small. Uh, no, so I mean the regions were never equal to begin with, and uh, and they're evolving in different ways too. It's mostly about you know the the local economy and what the local farmers see as the most profitable crops and what their neighbors are doing and how well their neighbors are doing and stuff like that
0: yeah because i mean cacao has no history in vietnam beyond as a fruit
1: yeah and and to be perfectly honest the, the farmers don't really care much for history it's it's very much not their problem what they're looking is return on investment there's a lot of fads as well. You you see things. Uh, If you look at what happened with black pepper, for example, for a long time, Vietnam was a marginal black pepper producer. And then about 10 years ago, some farmers realized that they could sell their pepper for over $10 per kilo. And then they realized that they could, with the right mix of chemical insurance uh, get incredible yields of up to three tons per year. So if you multiply three tons by $10, you've got um, uh, $30,000 worth of black pepper for every hectare you plant with black pepper. And those people became extremely rich by Vietnamese farming standards. And, And what happened is that Everybody started planting pepper and in places like Dak Lak, you know, you saw all these pepper farms coming up. And so, just driven by Vietnamese farmers, world prices for black pepper went from $12 per kilo to down to, I think last time I checked it was $3. So it was divided by four. And places that had had large production of black pepper, like India, for for decades, were absolutely devastated by the, uh, lack of a better word, greed and uh, enterprising spirit of, of Vietnamese farmers.
0: That's devastation.
1: Yeah. If, if, if you want to look at people cursing Vietnamese farmers, look in, in Indian newspapers. <laughs>
0: but how, how many years ago is this? Like
1: really recently? Oh, it's fairly recent. It's, it, yeah, it's something that's happened in the past 10 years. And and now, for example, when I speak about fads, you know, everybody's talking about durian in Vietnam. Of course, the Vietnamese have always had durian, although, well, not always. It's come from Malaysia. But, you know, first time I came to Vietnam more than 20 years ago, durian was being grown and, and consumed in Vietnam and there was it was a delicacy, you know, even though it smells extremely strong, but you know, people, uh, the, the Vietnamese liked it and it was, a, it's always been a, a delicate and expensive fruit, but the, the demand for it was limited. And then what's happened is that in the past few years, the Chinese market has become a major outlet for durian. And, and so. Uh, people have been planting durian and selling a, a lot of the spiky fruits to, to China. And uh, and then a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, if I plant durian instead of cacao, I'll be making a lot more money. Same with pomelo. It's, you know, it's like, you know, they they will look at whatever, the farmers will look at whatever their, their neighbors are doing and they will happily change crops and go for whatever pays the most
0: when you say where would you say that vietnam falls in terms of cacao production and chocolate production consumption in terms of the rest of asia
1: in terms of consumption it's hard to say Uh, you can basically uh, split asia between the countries where cacao can be grown or is being grown and then you have two countries that stand out it's indonesia and malaysia where there is a long history of producing cacao and then each of these countries is slightly different. I think there's extremely interesting things happening in Malaysia, with sort of old plantations being rediscovered, and uh, and, and things happening in uh, in the central highlands of uh, the Malay Peninsula, where you have local, you know, ethnic minorities that have sort of uh, old plantations in the forests. And I think there's a lot of really interesting things coming out of there then you have indonesia where every report that i read shows a steady decline in the production of cacao it's a long term trend it's it's been steadily declining for uh, 20 years i think and there you can see the competition from crops like palm oil which unlike cacao can be completely industrialized so you can you can manage massive plantations with very little labor and and it's uh, of course it's it's a horrible horrible crop uh, yeah. but in terms of yield uh, the largest indonesian groups that are involved in you know burning forests and and replacing them with uh, palm oil plantations those are groups that you know ha, are worth billions of dollars they're absolutely massive and you know, they doing all, all the worst things you can think in terms of environmental damage. Then you have Vietnam, which is a an agricultural powerhouse where there has been a lot of environmental damage in, in the past decades, but at least there is there is an attitude, I think, the, the, that says, well, we've done damage now, you know, Vietnam is a 21st century well, Vietnam is entering the twenty-first century in a in a good way. So the, there's a lot of you know public talks about transforming the uh, the agriculture in Vietnam to be more environmentally respectful and everything. Uh, I, I think Thailand is the same thing. Although, uh, as I said before, the the production of cacao in Thailand is very very marginal, and what we see coming up in Thailand is people who are. Interestingly, coming from the new trend of bean-to-bar chocolate and people who are investing in chocolate factories and thinking, oh, we could grow cacao here in Chiang Mai or in Chiang Rai or wherever. And, and they're going from the chocolate business to actually initiatives to plant cacao. And I think those will start being visible, more visible in, in coming years.
0: I agree, especially in Southeast Asia where the cost of of investing in such a thing is much lower than it would be in maybe Mexico or
1: I'm I'm not sure about that. You see, I mean one of the things that we see in Vietnam and I'm I I don't know, I, I couldn't tell you if it's the case in Thailand or in Cambodia or in Indonesia, but land in Vietnam is extremely expensive. Agricultural land. Because uh, I mean, there's a sort of perfect storm of demographics and uh, and the fact that all all the agricultural land was pretty much evenly divided between uh, farming families in uh, back in the 1980s, and so you've got people who have very small farms, uh, and and you've got a generation of people who became farmers, uh, you know, 30 years ago, and. And it's their sort of retirement fund. So they will sell land, but they they will sell it at a very high price. And then you have the the country has been growing very fast. There's been a lot of jobs in the industry or services and, and people moving from the countryside to the city. And, and, and so you see that there's not so many people staying in the countryside. And for those who stay, adding on to the farm, to the family farm by buying out their neighbors is a very costly option. So it makes for a very tough environment if you, if you have a plan to say plant cacao, finding land in the first place is very complicated.
0: Would you say there are differences in taste between the consumers in the north and the south? Like where they can grow cacao versus where they can't?
1: Well, there's difference in tastes. Generally speaking, you know, southern Vietnam has much more of a sweet tooth than northern Vietnam. Things like uh, the sweet and sour soup, which is a mainstay of southern Vietnam, you have no equivalent in northern Vietnam. It's nowhere near as sweet. When we're talking about savory food in general. So I think that, you know, any things like tea versus coffee and yeah, generally speaking, I think Southern Vietnam has more of a sweet tooth. And when it comes to chocolate, I think people probably have their sort of natural bias for or against sweet things that would be reflected in, in their appetite for chocolate.
0: And are there any uniquely Vietnamese flavors that you see a lot of you and other makers
1: using, and chocolatiers? Oh. <laughs> yeah, as chocolatier, we've been making things like chocolate bonbons with a ganache infused with fur spices. So like the, the typical mix of uh, uh, cinnamon, cardamom, black pepper, star anise seed that you will find flavoring the fur soup that's, uh, that's something we've been infusing ganaches with and of course there's local ingredients like one of our latest uh, flavored bars is one that's made with candied kumquat so that's using local ingredients uh, when it comes to nuts we use a lot of cashew nuts because vietnam produces a lot of that too but there's a lot of things that can be explored uh, the spices the fruits the the nuts that are local to Vietnam, but they're not entirely unique to Vietnam. You know, things like cashew nuts, they're extremely popular in the Indian subcontinent or even in in Africa as well. So, but I I guess compared with using hazelnuts or chestnuts like we would uh, use in Europe, I guess it's, it's a bit more exotic.
0: What are the most popular products sold in, in Maru? Is there a difference between the Hanoi shop versus the Saigon shop?
1: No, we've tried to drill down, see if there was much difference. And really, the only thing that really uh, sticks out is that we sell a lot more tea in in our showroom in Hanoi than in Ho Chi Minh City. So the Hanoians really like their tea. That's really the one thing that, that sticks out for the rest it's very hard to say there's there's much difference in uh, in terms of the the product mix being sold
0: that's all of my questions except for just what's what's something that you wish more people knew before they came to visit vietnam for the first time
1: what's uh, that's a big question uh, <laughs> vietnam is interesting and and and, and more and more people come to Vietnam. And uh, I don't know if Vietnam meets their expectation of what Vietnam should be like, but it, it, it's a very diverse country. I think if you've had a chance to come more than once, you, you will realize that, you know, they, from the north to the south, they, they're really almost like different countries bound by a common history and a common language, although big accent differences. And I think that diversity is great. It's also, I think, a country that's changing at this just incredibly frightening pace. And so if you've been to Vietnam 10 years ago and you come back now, it's almost like visiting two different countries, I think. And that's probably sort of expectation people should have, especially if they've been here before and that they've been here, you know, more than a few years ago.
0: I meant to ask this earlier, but what percentage of the visitors who go to Maison Maru in, in either place are from Vietnam? Because we saw a lot of foreigners when we were visiting.
1: Yeah, I, I I don't have stats, but you know I I like to think of uh, well if you if you divide the potential visitors in three categories, being the locals. The expats who live in Vietnam and the tourists, we probably get, uh, more locals. And then number two would be tourists and number three would be expats. Uh, and in terms of what they spend, uh, tourists can spend a lot of money just because they're, they're here for the short run and, uh, and you know, they, they will stack a bunch of bars and bring them as souvenirs especially if they're Japanese or Korean or even Chinese tourists they, they they can splurge quite a lot so so even though there's fewer of them than the the locals they can spend a lot more but we have more and more uh, Vietnamese uh customers and and we definitely have you know regulars people who come almost every day
0: it's impressive you've definitely built a culture around the the Vietnamese chocolate scene even though I, did, I couldn't believe Maison Maru has only been open three years.
1: Well, um, 2016, yeah, yeah, three and a half years.
0: Oh, it feels like much longer.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's part of the scenery now.
0: It is. It's, it's part of the expectations. You go to saint yeah, no, yeah. you visit Maison Maru. Is there anything else you'd like to share on the topic of Vietnamese chocolate and cacao?
1: No, I think well, i I think your point of view is interesting because you've been a regular visitor of Vietnam and always with a with a keen eye and interest in, in chocolate and I think you know, I one of the reflections that I was making to myself is there's more and more chocolate makers in, uh, in in Vietnam and you probably know them a lot better than than I know them. So I'm I'm looking forward to uh reading whatever you are going to write about uh, the the different visits or or the people you've met. And it'll be very interesting for for us to to, uh, see things with a a sort of outside point of view. Mm